You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Toonstar, an animation tech startup that produces snackable, interactive content for mobile audiences. To learn more, visit Toonstar.com or download the Toonstar app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Michael Wayne, co-founder and CEO of Kin Community. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, you excited we get to do this. Great radio voice. By the way, I meant <laughs> to say that before we started, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on the record. Thank you. I, people have told me I have a I have a face for radio too, so no, I got to stick to this no, medium. No, no, not true. <laughs> so I actually want to kind of start in an interesting spot. You actually kind of got your entree into the media business from what I could gather from my research when living in Prague. You founded a magazine called Velvet Magazine in the Czech Republic that was kind of English language content for Eastern and Central Europe. How did that come to be? I did. It was basically my first job after college. But there was a little story before moving to Prague that was very influential uh, in my decision to go to Prague and ultimately start a magazine. I, I was very lucky that in my, the summer after my sophomore year in college, I had an internship at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, and that was in the early 90s, so that should tell you how old I am. Uh, but uh, it was a great time to work in a magazine like Rolling Stone. It's obviously pre-internet. It's the director, pinnacle, if you will. Uh, and I was an intern, and one day I was filing some stuff and Jan Wenner, who is uh, the founder of the, the magazine and the CEO, uh, sat on the corner of my desk and he said, how old are you? And I was kind of taken aback. I'm like, oh my God, the founder, Jan Wenner, sitting on the corner of my desk. And I said, I'm, I'm 19. And he looked at me and he said, by the time I was 19, I had already published two years of Rolling Stone. And wow. He, and he just walked away. <laughs> and I looked and I didn't know how to take it, but I thought, wow. That was kind of an a-hole thing to say, but it kind of got me, it, it kind of motivated me. I was like, wow, this guy, you know, had, had done a lot by the time he was my age. And do you think that was the intention? Had you had any sort of interaction I, with I him? No, I have no that? idea. Wow. To this day, I have no idea why he sat on the corner of the desk or why he said what he said, but it just stuck with me. And so after college, I, I had been lucky the summer before I graduated college to live in London and travel around Europe. And it was such an awesome experience. I thought, you know, after I graduated college, the economy actually in 1993, 94 wasn't very good. And the perfect job wasn't there. So I ended up deciding to move to Prague with a friend of mine. And why Prague? Unfortunately, well, fortunately, I should say there wasn't really a a rhyme or reason to it. My, a friend of mine who I had lived with in London the summer before I graduated from college had gotten into law school and he deferred a year and he called me up one day after we graduated and he said, hey, I'm thinking of either going to Armenia or to Prague. And I said, well, that's cool. What are you going to do? He said, I'm going to teach English. And I said, well, let me know which you choose. And a, and a couple weeks go by and he says, well, the, there's a civil war in Armenia. <laughs> so uh, That narrows it I'm, down, huh? I'm going, I'm going to Prague and uh, do you want to come? I was like, sure, what are we going to do? And he said, well, there's this English language school. Why don't we go teach English? send me your diploma and I'll send it to the guy I'm sending my diploma to. So we ended up teaching English for uh, a few months there. Uh, and it was crazy. You know, this is, again, it's pre-internet. 
It's uh, only a couple years after the wall came down in Germany, and it, it was only a few months after the Czech Republic and Slovakia had split. It was just an extraordinary time to be there. It was newly democratic, still very communist, if, you know, because obviously it had just become democratic, but an amazing influx of, of Americans and Europeans who were living in the city, and just an exciting time to be there. And so I was a journalist in college. I obviously worked at Rolling Stone magazine. I had the kind of journalist bug. So I was writing for some local newspapers and magazines in Prague. And then I had the idea, kind of Jan Lenner kicked back into, into my head, hey, why don't I start a magazine? Everyone else are doing cool things in Prague. And so uh, thankfully my, my mother uh, helped me get that off the ground by giving me a couple bucks. Very good. Nice. And how was your check? Do you still speak any Czech? Uh, no. I mean, I, I can count to 10 and say hello and thank you and uh, can I have a beer, please, which is the requisite, uh, you know, part of the check you need to know. Uh, but, but no, I don't really speak Czech that well yeah. anymore. Okay. How did the magazine do? Oh, it was a total crazy up and down ride. I mean, I, at that time I was 23. I'd never done anything entrepreneurial before. We had this kind of ragtag group of Czech and American and European expats living in Prague. The magazine was in English. It was kind of modeled after Time Out magazine. So it was the most formative and in many ways the best experience as a young person. But I made so many mistakes. We made tons of mistakes, which we could probably have a whole other hour-long podcast to talk about. But it was, it was great. From a business standpoint, it was not so great. But from a life experience standpoint and just being a formative experience, it was outstanding. So you mentioned this is really your first entrepreneurial endeavor. What inspired you? Was it really just Jan's comment, or had, no, you, no, had no. you had the entrepreneurial bug in the past? I did, I did. I would say my really first entrepreneurial experience came in high school. So I grew up in Manhattan, and uh, the pri- I went to private school, an all-boys private school in Manhattan called Brown. And it was part of, this is going to sound so silly, it was part of a, an organization called the United Coalition of Concerned Students. It's even funny bringing it up. But it, basically, this, this, this organization, all the private schools got together, and they would host these kind of parties or events for kids at private schools to go to. So it would be a safe place to hang out. And I ended up becoming the head of this organization in my, my junior year, and I decided to, um, to have a big event called Rock Fest, which was going to be... Uh, bands from around the city performing at this event and we ended up having I don't know six seven hundred kids show up and six seven bands perform it's just a big event and I, I remember at that moment in my junior year in high school standing on stage kind of announcing the bands or, or saying something I just remember wow this was awesome like being able to create something out of nothing that's when I really I think caught the entrepreneurial bug uh, so it's not surprising that right after college I kind of had my uh kind of stars aligned in Prague. I have to give my mom a lot of credit. She, when she came and visited me in Prague, and at one point she said, wow, all these young people are doing all these exciting things. Why aren't you starting, a, why aren't you starting something? And that, that really, I think, was, was one of the catalysts where I said, you know what? She's absolutely right. Why, why not start something? And because I was a writer, magazine seemed like the right thing to do. So you spent a couple years in Prague and then decided to move back to the States. What happened next? So I was lucky. It's so, so funny how life can just, so much of your life, look back on it, can be serendipity. I had 
been in London when I was living in Prague. I had met with Condé Nast, actually. They, they were interested in starting GQ in the Czech Republic. And because I was a publisher and I was American, they thought, hey, why not talk to this guy? So I, I went to London to meet with their uh, head of Europe, uh, which was, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, um, I think he worked for one of the new houses, was, was running Europe. I think Jonathan Newhouse. And um, on the plane ride back, I sat next to a guy who just, we started chatting and said, what do you do? I said, oh, I publish a magazine. And he goes, and because, you know, at the time, 23 years old, he's like, what? You know, he's, he's probably 10, 15 years older than me. I said, no, I, I publish a magazine. I pulled it out of my bag. I always had a copy of the magazine. And I gave it to him. He said, oh, that's interesting. I said, well, what do you do? He goes, oh, I, uh, I work in marketing at ABC television. And I said, oh, great. So we chat, chat, chat. He gives me his card. And it, He's the executive vice president of marketing at ABC Television, so it wasn't it wasn't like he was a junior person there. He basically ran marketing at ABC. And he said, "Listen, you know, if you ever go back to the states, give me a holler." And so, you know, uh, over the next year, he and I kept in touch a little bit here or there. Uh, and so, when I uh, decided to move back to the states, I emailed him and I said, "Are there any jobs at ABC?" He said, "Yeah, come on in." Uh, and interview for a marketing job, and I did, and I got it, and so I ended up becoming a marketing manager at uh, ABC Television Network. That's wow. what got me back to New York. But, so just, yeah, it was a very, very total serendipity. Well, what did you learn during your time at ABC? Well, this is 1997, and uh, so it's a great time because the internet has really just started to take off. In uh, my role there, my, my exact title was marketing development manager. I think that was it. Or manager of marketing development. And my job was to develop new ways of marketing the shows on ABC. And basically the mandate was just come up with crazy ideas. And so everyone at ABC, I, I'm convinced that the operator, when someone called ABC and said, uh, I want to talk to someone who deals with the internet, they ended up sending them to me. I literally had a line of people with every new internet idea pitching me at ABC. I don't really know why I did it, because it's not like I could just snap my fingers and make something happen, but, but I, I interviewed pretty much everyone. Um, and, um, and then I also just came up with ideas. So my, my, my claim to fame, I was only at ABC for one year, but my claim to fame was I was the first guy to uh, advertise on the back of a Metro card in New York. So I don't, this, you know, Metro tokens had kind of come and gone, obviously, and everyone was using Metro cards. And one day I was just riding the subway. I was like, why hasn't anyone advertised on the back of one of these things? So it was a whole crazy thing with the, with the you know, uh, the city government that I had to go through to do it, but we ended up putting a Spin City uh, for anyone who remembers that show, Michael J. Fox show, on the back of the Metro card. Very smart. Yes, but but there was another thing that happened at ABC that was awesome. I met a guy named Dave Goldberg, and uh, Dave, at the time, had started a company called Launch, and Launch, uh, at the time, was a CD-ROM magazine, and uh, it was a music CD-ROM, so every month you would get another... Uh, copy of this CD-ROM magazine, uh, and in it, you you know, you put it in your CD-ROM and you'd open it up, and it was the metaphor was a city. So you open it up, and you have a city. You could click in different cities, and video and audio would pop up. And so there were interviews with music artists, and there was stuff to read, and there was TV show promos in it. And so one of the deals I did was I 
worked with Dave to create an ABC building in this CD-ROM that you would click on and, and watch a bunch of ABC stuff. But the reason why it was it was such a uh, awesome introduction and ultimately relationship is uh, I ended up moving to LA to join him at launch. What about launch inspired you to join and make the big cross country yeah, move? It's a, it's a great question. So one thing I didn't mention before about the Rolling Stone internship is after I worked at Rolling Stone, one of the writers at Rolling Stone who I worked with also was a producer at MTV. And he said, Hey, we have uh, semester long internships at MTV. You should, if you really like this experience at Rolling Stone, you should work at MTV. So I actually worked at MTV um, for six months. And the reason I say that is I always loved music. You could tell from Rockfest in 11th grade. And then I worked at Rolling Stone, which was music focused, and then MTV, which was music focused. And so when I met Dave and I saw this crazy CD-ROM that was all music focused, I thought, wow, this is, this is first of all, very cutting edge at the time, which is funny to say CD-ROM is cutting edge, but it was in 1997. And uh, it's music related and it's content related. So I just, I love the idea of working in, in a more entrepreneurial environment. Obviously I had done the magazine. And so that was just a great opportunity. And there, there was something else about Dave. First of all, Dave was super, super smart. Just one of the smartest people I'd ever met in my life. And I'll never forget, he and I were walking down Broadway in New York, and he said, you know this CD-ROM is just a placeholder. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, all of this is going to be streamed over the internet. And you realize that everyone is ultimately going to consume text, audio, video, over the internet. And, you know, this is 1997, we're walking down Broadway, and I just, my head, I could literally, you could see it was exploding as he was explaining how all of this was going to work. And he, he had a very clear vision for all uh, how it was going to work. So I was, I was just, from that moment on, seduced by this idea that, wow, the future is all going to be distributed over the internet. And really, I can go back to that one walk down Broadway to saying that was probably the moment where I said, you know what, the rest of my career is going to be focused on the internet. Yeah, how prophetic, right? Yeah, exactly. Has, has done that. Yeah, he was a smart dude. Amazing. So, so that happens. You join Launch. You make the move. I do. Launch is this uh, roller coaster of a business that grows rapidly. IPOs acquired by Yahoo. Tell us about that whole experience. It was, it was uh, an amazing experience. So first of all, I was living in New York at the time. So that was the first big thing is it was an LA-based company. So moved to LA uh, and... We were uh, at a little office on 5th Street, right off the highway. Uh, and, you know, this is now 1998. This is not Santa Monica of 2018, right? There were maybe a handful of companies. Uh, Silicon Beach had never been even thought of as a term. It was, it was just a totally different time. Um, but there was a real excitement, you know, uh, around what we were doing. When I joined the company, there were probably about 40 or 50 employees uh, and we were just in between, I believe, our Series B round and our Series C round. And then we raised our Series C round. I think we raised, if I can remember, about 20 or $21 million. And that was just, like, unbelievable. We were like, oh, my God, this is great. So we, we just ramped very, very quickly. 1998, 99, 2000, as you know, everyone remembers, was just a very heady time. Um, we went very quickly from being a CD-ROM to a web, you know, we, we launched a, a dot .com. Actually, we couldn't get launch.com to start. So it was, uh, I think, my launch 
www.mysoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsoulsouls
you know, I, I think I think back then we were probably weren't even in the ballpark of the baseball game, let alone the first inning. I think I don't know where we are now, but I do think things have a tendency of accelerating. And you know, I think it's been first of all, I think it's very hard to know exactly where you are in this protracted disruption period we're in. I don't know, you know, I think it's undeniable that for many, 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 many years, obviously audiences have moved to consuming content on platforms. We all know that, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, so forth. Billions of people use that. I just think it takes a really long time, probably longer than anyone expects for the business machinery to move to adapt to that. Clearly the technology and the user behavior has moved far faster than probably anyone would have thought, but the business machinery has taken a really long time. And that's why I guess what I'm especially fascinated by is that at first, absolutely, there were technical challenges, but much of that has been overcome. And so the next part of it is is a bit cultural, right? And then it's the it's the industry, the complex about how do, how do the businesses wrap their heads around this? And so you think about what will come next in this story is, I mean, all of what you've described is still pre-YouTube. And when YouTube comes on the scene, it starts off with cat videos and pirated kind of premium television content, but quickly we develop this UGC phenomenon. And then with the iPhone and all these other smartphones, you get an explosion of anyone can be a creator and that changes the game and then leads to Netflix being able to kind of flip that traditional premium content model on its head. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, I guess the question is like, what is next, right? For, for people who have for years now decried that the traditional studios, the traditional TV networks are going to go out of business and vanish in thin air one night. I think that's still very far off base because the value of what they've built is in programming and developing IP. And it's just about where is that IP going to be consumed? So yes, the distribution methods have changed. And some people are now concerned that all the power is going to get kind of aggregated between Google, Amazon, Netflix, you name it. Uh, is that, in fact, going to play out, or do Disney and the other studios still stand a fighting chance? Uh, I wish I had uh, a crystal ball to tell you all these things. I mean, look, I think we've seen this play out, and it's certainly a principle that I believe in. If you're going to be a business like our business, or businesses that I've been a part of, so I, I was at launch, and we always considered ourselves the premier music media business, and we were focused on creating very high-quality content, what we believed was very high-quality content. After launch, I moved to Sony, which was a traditional entertainment company, where obviously that was the focal point. And really, since founding Kin, and you know this, but our, the original name of our company was DECA, when uh, we founded the company in 2007, and then 2011, we shifted to calling it Kin, and we can talk about that later, but... but one of the tenets of the company, one of the core principles of the company was always focused on how do you create quality content and, um, and not necessarily in some preconceived notion of quality, like um, quality in the movie space or the TV space, but just um, where you have uh, really high quality production values, really high quality talent, really high quality engagement, um, just quality through and through. Now, we obviously live and have continued to live in this huge shift from scarcity models to abundance models. And I think we're all still, and when I mean we all, I mean from big companies like Disney to little companies like Kin, we're all still trying to navigate how do you really build value in that. I believe we do live in a Google, Facebook, 
Instagram, Amazon world. And that's not going to go back. You know, like those platforms were built for global audiences. They were built on technology and that's not, it's just not going to change. We, we, when I think of our business, I think we live in that reality. Now, do I think there are opportunities in that reality? A, a thousand percent. I think that people still yearn to connect through high-quality storytelling. Um, and they still yearn to connect uh, to people that they admire uh, and that they feel inspired by and to be a part of a community. You know, I, I think one of the interesting things about where we are today is, and this relates directly to our business, is that we're a lifestyle company, right? A lifestyle entertainment company. We create lifestyle entertainment. And that's very different than creating Game of Thrones or creating House of Cards or creating a, a very big cinematic scripted narrative series. And so I think the dynamics of those two different types of storytelling have just different business, you know, there are different business opportunities with those. In our, in our business, there is just an enormous amount of quote-unquote lifestyle content out there. You could argue all of YouTube in some ways, shape, or form is lifestyle content. So the perception is that I can get that content for free everywhere. Now, we like to think ours is the best lifestyle entertainment content in the world. But, but still, it's different than we're creating Game of Thrones, which has uh, a different economic model, a different production cost model, and also a different perceived value. I think people, and rightfully so, perceive that as very high quality, very high content. I'm willing to pay for that. It's like, you know, what you get is just different. So, so I don't know if you can group all content together in the same boat. I think you need to look at it through a little bit of different lenses. And I think it's evolving. I think our business model is evolving. I think the Netflix model and Disney's model, it's all, it's all evolving. Yeah. And I think that the platforms need quality. At the end of the day, I think they need quality from Disney. I think they need quality from us. The other thing I would add is in our space, in, in particular with lifestyle, I think talent plays a totally different role. So it's undeniable that talent, uh, particularly in, in the unscripted and, and, uh, and lifestyle space, have been able to develop over the last 10 plus years a very powerful direct connection with audiences, right? So, you know, we have a show called Tia Mori's Quick Fix. Tia Mori has 12 million social followers, right? On Facebook and Instagram, across all social platforms. So she's been able to develop, outside of Hollywood and outside of working with Kin, this very valuable connection. That's undeniable, that's happening with obviously YouTube stars and it's happening with traditional talent. In a sense, they, that, that's just a reality that the entertainment business and the media business is just going to have to live with. And I don't know if everyone has wrapped their head around that yet from the traditional side. Oh, I don't think so at all. I yeah. mean, you, you've got this emerging class of influencer talent that's grown up on the social platforms. Then you have some of the savvier traditional players like Tia or The Rock, Will Smith, whose teams have gotten them into this, rightfully so. But there's still this kind of middle tier of working actors and other talent, whether they're celebrity chefs or musicians, right, um, athletes that aren't 
fully engaged with their fans through social yet, and that's the next big opportunity. I I agree, and and, uh, that's a lot, I would say, 100% of what we're focused on at this point. And I think that'll change in the next 10 years, too, right? I mean, we see politics as being revolutionized by social media. 100%. I mean, and then this gets back to the platform. So for us... Um, we love working with the social influencers that we've worked with for many, many years, and we continue to work with uh, a, a group of social influencers that share our values and share kind of our passion for lifestyle content. Um, and we're really excited because now we're working with a whole group of traditional uh, personalities or celebrities, whatever you want to call them, that have built these direct relationships with their audiences, and they're they're a little different because they've they've kind of built careers working with the traditional studios and the traditional networks. So they're not necessarily uh, used to or even want to like turn on a f- camera at home and start filming themselves and editing themselves and dealing with all the the platform uh, intricacies. So, so a company like ours can be a lot of value to, to working with talent like that. And I think with some of the last things that we've, we've launched, that's, that's played out and we're super excited about it. So let's talk a little bit more about everything that came together to inspire you to launch DECA, right? Digital Entertainment Company of America. <laughs> Thank you for explaining You're that, welcome. that uh, name in its full. That's right. So you and uh, Chris Kimball, fellow uh, Sony colleague, were... were... Launch colleague. Oh, yeah, very good. To launch in at Sony together. That's okay. Right. Yeah. What gave you the idea? Well, it was part of a continuum. I mean, I think going back to launch and going back to those early days, I really did believe that um, that the future was going to be digital and that it was going to be distributed over the internet. So I've been from over twenty years now obsessed with this idea of how do you create uh, a media company, an entertainment company from the ground up. Uh, that's digital. And if you look back, that's what we were trying to do at launch. And when I was at Sony, I spent a lot of time trying to do that. Obviously, that was a traditional company. But but my job was to kind of figure out how to create new business, businesses and business models in digital. And so when we started DECA, that was really the goal. And our ambition was, how do you create a repeatable model that is scalable, and that is profitable in this world. And to be honest with you, now 10 years plus in, we're still working on that. And thankfully, it's, it, it, uh, I feel very, very uh, confident that we're, we're doing that now. And I think, you know, it's only getting better for us. But there has been a lot of kind of learnings along the way. Uh, you know, when we started the company, YouTube had barely started, right? I mean, it was it was maybe less than a year old at that point. So there wasn't really, there weren't platforms. So we were, and when we started the company, we were creating these brands, none that probably anyone would remember, but, uh, you know, we had a brand called Momversation, where we worked with a bunch of mom bloggers and created video that went on this website called momversation.com, as well as their websites, their blogs. We created a site called Project Lore with a guy named Alex Albrecht, who some people might remember from Revision 3. And that was all about World of Warcraft. And so every week we'd 
or even a couple times a week, I think we'd post videos on projectlore.com. You know, we created a, a business site called the Dog and Pony Show or dogandpony.com. You know, we, were, we didn't have a platform. It's interesting because when uh, I, I have a mentor uh, who has sat on our board for many, many years who uh, ran a, a big games company. And he said, you know, in the early days of gaming, it was all PC-based. And, you know, you have to go to a retailer or a computer store and buy a game and put it on your PC. It was pretty clunky. And then all of a sudden, you know, PlayStation and Sega and Nintendo and all of these platforms came around. And the entire game industry changed. And it's funny because he's telling me this 10 plus years ago. And then, sure enough, all of a sudden YouTube starts to care about quality content. And then all of a sudden now we've seen in the last few years you've got Facebook and now Instagram. And, and so I do feel like that now we're in this uh, evolution of the online video space, which is probably pretty similar to where we were early on in the game space. You now have content companies uh, who are creating content and monetizing across multiple platforms. And there's just a, a, just a more organized ecosystem. Uh, and so, so that's exciting. But um, you know, we we uh, when we started the company and we launched all these random brands, we also did something that was super formative for our company. Uh, a guy named Barry Blumberg came into my office one day, and uh, it, after much encouraging from from UTA, UTA just said, "You got to meet these. You got to meet this company called Smosh." Again, this is two thousand seven. So, uh, and I was like, I'm there, what, Smosh? Like, what are you, they're big on YouTube. What, what does that mean, they're big on YouTube? Just trust me, meet them, meet them. Uh, so this guy, Barry Blumberg, comes into my uh, office and he sits down and he says, and by the way, we're in a crappy little office which doesn't exist anymore on Fifth Street in Colorado, uh, which is right around the corner from launch, which I thought was kind of ironic. But um, he, he sits down and he says, hey, uh, I used to be the president of television animation at Disney, and I, I called up these guys because I saw their videos on YouTube, and I think they're really, really fun, and, and kids love them. I'm like, what are you talking about? But she's like, trust me, just let's open up a browser, and I'm going to show you. And so he, he opens up a browser, and literally every video has millions of views, and every video has tens of thousands of comments and likes. And at the time, I don't even think they called it subscribers. I think it was maybe... I think it was likes. I don't know what was before subscriber. I can't even remember. But at the time, they had like 200,000 likes. I think it was. But the most important thing that he showed me at the time was he opened up a browser, and at the time, you could see how your video ranked all over the world. So On the watch page, they had the, uh, the they trending had list, charts. Yeah, they had a yeah. list of every country in the world. Yeah. And literally Smosh's video for that week and every week was number one everywhere in the world. And so I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm not believing, because here we were creating videos and putting it up on our own websites and getting like, if we got 50 comments or or we were like, our, we were just like, oh my God. Is You're ecstatic, yeah. I'm looking yeah. at these guys and I'm like, they're getting 225,000 comments on a video. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, well, I don't know. We, we, we're just trying to figure out how to turn this into a business. And I said, what do you want? I mean, and you should interview Barry because he would be a good. He basically said, well, just tell me what we should do. So we ended up spending the next few months negotiating and we made an investment. Our board was like, what are you doing? Like investing in this YouTube channel. I'm like, trust me, these guys are fit kind of our mold. They're, they're, um, they're 
funny and they have an amazingly engaged audience and they're not crass or crude or they weren't, they, they kind of were clean. I mean, they were borderline, but still clean enough. And we should work with them and own part of their business and professionalize them. That was sort of the idea. Let's professionalize this business. And so we did. So we became co-owners in Smosh. We owned, uh, we owned um, not the majority of the company, a minority of the company, but their office ended up being our office and we ended up uh, running the Smosh business for four years. Wow. So, so Barry had gotten attached. He just called them out of the blue, found these guys on so YouTube. We all became partners. So yeah. Ian, Barry, and, 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 and Decca. Sure. Time, we were all partners, and Barry worked out of our office. Wow. I know it was kind of crazy. But then you ultimately decided to focus exclusively on women's lifestyle well, content. This is, this is kind of the crazy thing. Okay. So, so, yeah, so in 2008, we had a website called Momversation that became, uh, there were a couple things that happened. The uh, economy went off a cliff in 2008. And Monversation showed a lot of promise. We had some big advertisers who were sponsoring Monversation. So at that time, we kind of decided, hey, instead of being spread thin across business and comedy and video games and all these, we were just in all these different categories. Like, Let, let's focus on one category. When economies turn sour, uh, it, ironically, um, CPG brands and retail brands do very well because people stop eating out. They start buying things in mass. Obviously, women have always been ahead of household, ahead of spending, and um, and we target a very mainstream women's audience across the country. Uh, which tends to be underserved which in media underserved. content, especially at that time. And so at that time, and mom blogging had started reaching a pinnacle, like everyone was you know, talking about mom bloggers, we had the top 20 mom bloggers who were on Momversation. And so we actually, in 2008, we made that investment in Smosh, and then probably within six months, we decided to focus the entire company on women's lifestyle. But Smosh did so well. I mean, remember, when we first met them, they maybe had 200,000, whatever they were called, likes, or at that point, not subscribers. I mean, have you checked what Smosh, Smosh now has oh. 10 channels and probably 50 million subscribers? I haven't even checked last. So we just noticed something. Uh, we were like, we were not going to not focus. We were definitely going to focus on Smosh as well. So we had this whole women's lifestyle business and Smosh. But after three or four years, I think we got to the point where we were probably not serving them well because so much of our business had grown around women's lifestyle. So Barry and I talked about it, and, and at the time, Alloy, uh, which then merged with Break and is now Defy, and obviously they're in the press these days. But at the time, Alloy was all about teen audiences and all about that young adult audience. And so I was approached by their CEO about... Keith. Uh, or was no, that Matt before. Diamond? Yeah, it was Matt. Matt Diamond, okay. So at the time, again, they hadn't merged. That came much later, but Matt, Matt said, hey, Smosh would make for uh, a really good brand in our portfolio of brands. You know, Alloy had a really interesting history because they uh, were around even 10 years earlier with a bunch of brands. They even had an entertainment studio, which I believe owned Gossip Girl and had been spun off and sold to Warner Brothers. They had a bunch of assets. I don't, I don't know exactly all of the bits and pieces of that business, but, but um, they, uh, at that time, they were really focused on building a digital media company. And so it just made sense for us to, uh, to sell that business to, to Alloy, and we did. And, so and Barry went with them with the Barry, deal. Barry went with them. Alloy and Break merge, become yes. Defy. That's Barry correct. becomes chief content officer for quite a long time. The rest is history. Yep. Yes. But but that all uh, that all stemmed back to the early decade. Wow. Which is which is uh, pretty, uh, pretty That's wild. I never yeah, knew that, that whole story. Yeah, okay. So, so now you're focused on women's lifestyle content and you have all these brands. What happens to Momversations yeah, and Project Lore and, and all that stuff? All so websites. so basically what happened is we just focused on Momversation. 
And in 2010 and 11, we get approached by YouTube to be one of their funded channels. And this is when Kin, the brand of Kin, is born. They, they approached us and said, hey, we want you to do a women's lifestyle channel uh, targeting, um, you know, kind of women 25 plus. And that was kind of all we had focused on at that point. So we decided to create a consumer-facing brand. And at the time, our head of programming was a woman named Beth Lemonak, and uh, our chief creative director was a woman named Eileen Levinson. And she, she, I said, you guys just, you guys have it in you to really create this new brand for this platform and for other social platforms. And so they went off and they came back, and what they created was absolutely beautiful. Those were the early days. So we, we ended up creating, I don't know, 700 videos as a part of that YouTube program. And they were all beautiful. And, and in many ways, you know, the whole format of not seeing the talent and seeing beautiful images of hands just making recipes, you know, we were very early in doing that. Um, and they were just little beautiful, almost like little food movies. Um, I, I, just as an aside, I'll, I'll, I never forget this, this great story. So I went to the first brand cast. Uh, I don't remember how long ago. It was 10 years ago or something like that. And it was at the Beacon Theater in New York. And this was, this was a really uh, exciting moment in our company because we had we'd been off of YouTube. Now we're on YouTube. We've gotten funding. We'd launched this channel. Um, we're really excited about YouTube as a platform. And so I go to Brandcast and Kinsel's up there uh, talking about how this funding project had, uh, you know, we were so excited about it. Goes through his whole spiel. And, and then he says, so now, everyone, let's look at the content. The lights go down. And the very first video they show is a Kin video. And I just, I was like, wow, like, you know, I'm sitting, this, I'm sitting in this audience with, I don't know how many, 1,200 other people, and this was the first video that YouTube showed as their investment is this food video, and I was just like, you know, it was a very exciting moment. That's amazing. As, as, you know, I'll forget that. So and just, well, just for reference, yeah. uh, so this is YouTube's big annual dog and pony show for advertisers, right? That's it's right. there up front, essentially. And uh, they've changed significantly in, in structure, format, and tone over it's the years. Certainly. Sure. Yeah. yeah, but I, I guess what's interesting about that is, is a lot of people think of the first YouTube original content initiative, which was $100 million investment in a lot of these funded channels, as largely unsuccessful. Right? It was a big learning experience, 100%. but most of it went into traditional talent like Shaquille O'Neal yes. and you know, these trying to bring celebrities onto the platform to professionalize YouTube's image. And yet, the bets that they made with some of the homegrown creators and those who were actually building audience on the platform like kin community were the breakout successes. Yeah, they were. I mean, I, you and I should figure out how many channels are left from that. I'm guessing it's less than two and like less than 10. Uh, and I think they funded probably definitely more than a hundred. I'm guessing maybe more than 200 channels. So uh, Many of them became MCNs. You had Machinima and Oscars Machinima, TV. That's correct. So right. there's, there's definitely some less, and we ended up doing that. Actually. Sure. Uh, now we didn't take the maker and Machinima and Awesomeness approach, and in large part because we had already gone through working with creators, not YouTube creators, but bloggers through our, uh, you know, over the first years of Deca. And again, the sort of principle of quality over quantity and, and really focusing on, on that uh, led us to create an MCN. But, you know, we've never really worked with more than 50 to 100 creators, even to this day. Uh, so, but we like the idea. We like the idea of having this Kin channel. Our, our name was Kin Community, and we wanted to create a community of like-minded creators. And we did end up doing that. Obviously, the 
business model evolved and the space evolved very quickly. And so our model changed along with that. Well, and that's what's so interesting is because it seems that at this time, when you change from Decca to Kin, you essentially become one of the first digital publishers, right? To be followed by the likes of Tastemade and Me Too, I think, played the MCN game, pivoted to kind of the digital publisher strategy. So it, it seems like you were very early to that model. And the monetization strategies that went along with that business model changed too, from very ad-dependent to direct brand sales to multi-platform merchandise, offline monetization, you know, everything, the mix that we have today. It's true. It's funny. Uh, again, this, this we could probably spend an hour talking about this, but we've never really looked at ourselves as a digital publisher. And, and I know it's a semantics thing because people are like, oh, you're a publisher, you publish. But I do think there's something in the word publisher that is uh, not uncomplicated in the sense that publishing really is rooted in not only print, obviously, but it's rooted in the early days of the internet, right? When you created a website, you published content to it. And many, uh, I mean, we all went through this last year phenomenon of the pivot to video and all of that stuff. I think there are companies out there that in particular were founded in LA, that were founded around video, that never had websites at their core, that you could call them digital publishers, but they, I don't, I think they were really pure play video companies that weren't rooted in, in what publishers were. You can call us a publisher or whatever, but I just, I think, uh, I think there's actually a very big difference between the business models, the skill sets, the histories, the cultures, the ambitions of true digital publishers, people who started with websites hired journalists. Hearst, Condé Nast. Hearst, Condé Nast in the traditional sense, but also digital publishers who who started as news organizations. Like the Refinery29s and the Voxes of the World. For sure, right? I think think those companies' histories are very different than companies like Kin or some of the other LA-based video companies. Totally fair. Yep. And so... And I think we're seeing a new wave now, right? You've got CryptTV and Cheddar and Futurism and... We we are, we are. And so I actually think we never set out to be a digital publisher. We, we always looked at ourselves first as a studio and then second as a network. And that's, that's actually now really what we are today. Yeah. Huh. And that's fair. I mean, I think that's also the lens through which Awesomeness TV views its business, right? And many of these other kind of next-gen millennial studios view their business. Uh, 100%. Yeah. However, uh, I can't tell you how many times we've been called a digital publisher. <laughs> <laughs> Nine times out of ten, people call us a digital publisher. So, sure. so much for that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So uh, there's so much there, but uh, but tell me a little bit more about the monetization and how that's changed over the years as well. For sure. So I think there's, it's more than just monetization. I think it's business model. I think, you know, er, in the early days of DECA, we owned IP. Uh, The talent, you know, we worked with bloggers. So we always believed from very early on in the company that you should work with social talent, people who had direct relationships with audiences. Problems with bloggers were they were writers. They weren't really video folks. So, so that was a learning experience. Like, hey, we're creating all these great video assets, but our talent doesn't really have, it, it, it's a different currency. It didn't translate for all it of them. It didn't really yeah. translate. And, and then also the platforms weren't there. So now we move on to YouTube and we create IP that we own. 
uh, and we create a network. Uh, so the platform issues are getting solved. Uh, and the talent issues are interesting because we start representing uh, YouTubers, but we never really are able to figure out creating owned IP. Because if you're a YouTuber, you've been doing it on your own, you own your brand, you own your, your, your IP. And so I think there were some issues there that a lot of us ran into where it was fine to rep, in a sense, the network, but you're never going to own the network. And so I think now there's this next phase where we the, the platform stuff have really started to get figured out. We're now monetizing on YouTube with through AdSense and Facebook ads, and we can sell products on Amazon. And now IGTV, we're going to hopefully monetize sooner than later on that. The talent issue is now coming into focus for us. So when we work with talent, like we talked about earlier, Tia, she's got huge social, but she's willing to not have to own the IP, right? She can participate, and all of our talent participates in it, but it doesn't have to be like, I own everything, right? So, uh, so I think there's a lot of things being worked out. The audience piece has been worked out. Uh, the cost of creating really high-quality lifestyle entertainment has come way down, so we're, we're able to create beautiful content. Again, I, I think our content is, is uh, as high-quality as any, whether that's digital or television but at a really efficient, effective cost. And then now we're able to monetize across all of these platforms through programmatic, through brand integration, through e-commerce, ultimately through licensing our content and through other windows. And so I, I just think, yeah, as you can tell, I'm pretty excited about, uh, about how this whole ecosystem has evolved over the last 10 plus years. Yeah. And in recent years, uh, Ken has also kind of expanded into a new frontier, which is international. So following investments from Chorus and Fairfax Media, yes. you've moved into Canada, Australia. What is it like operating in those markets? It's, it's awesome. I mean, I think we can take all the learning that we had in the U.S. and hopefully not make some of those same mistakes in those international markets. I think there's no question if you talk to uh, the folks in Canada or in Australia that those markets are behind the U.S. in terms of its evolution. They're also smaller markets, so you don't have as, as much kind of noise in the marketplace. So Canada and Australia are great international divisions of our company. They're just in some ways different than the focus of what we're doing here in the U.S. So if you look at, if you look at uh, Canada, it's more or less an MCN. It, it doesn't create original content yet for the Canadian market. I think that will change over time. Uh, it has this really close-knit group of creators. We have a TV partner in Chorus who can help us uh, with sales uh, and provides a certain amount of marketing and leverage in that marketplace. And same thing with Fairfax Media in Australia. It's primarily an MCN business that works with brands. But um, they're great businesses, and I, I actually think we will continue to explore expanding into to new markets, whether it's... If I'm, if I'm to be honest, if we enter new markets, it will probably be around more of this kin neighborhood model that we've built, where we have owned channels working with uh, more mainstream personalities. Because I think if you if you look around the world, whether it's the UK or Japan or Brazil, they're the same thing that's happening in those markets, where you have this convergence of social influencers and more traditional talent, all kind of building their social at the same time. Now that's happening. So for us, the MCN model is okay, and we like it, and we continue to work with a small group of, of talent, 
but where we really are creating asset value for the company is owning IP, building these channels and series that are monetizing very well globally. What does the future hold for Kin Community? Well, we're really focused on building this neighborhood strategy, which is ultimately a network strategy. So we are working with talent that uh, are well-known, that have big social following, that have a passion for lifestyle, that share our values. So that hasn't changed. I mean, whether it was the, M- the bloggers 10 years ago, whether it was the MCN partners, whether it's the talent we're working with now, they all, um, they all have the same values as the company, which is to, you know, our, our mission is uh, to make women feel good about the lives they're building, right? So uh, all of our audience are kind of these women, primarily 25 plus, that have entered the, what we call the builder years of their life. They're building their families, they're building their careers, uh, they're building their homes, and, and they're focused on that. And so all of the talent, all the content we make kind of is in their sweet spot, right? It's food content, it's home, it's DIY, it's style and beauty. Uh, and so really, if you think about Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and Amazon as being, let's call them sprawling cities in this internet universe, I think there's a real value today in creating these very brand safe, very community driven neighborhoods. And that's really conceptually how we think of what we're building with Kin now. So Tia Mori's Quick Fix is on all of those platforms and it is a very safe, brand friendly, inspiring place for consumers to engage with. And if you look at all things Adrian, which is uh, Adrian Houghton's channel, and you look at all the other talent that we're working with, we're going to launch another four or five this year, and the next year we're going to launch another dozen of these channels, they all share sort of the same connective tissue. So the idea here is that audiences should feel good when they go to one of our channels and see the Kin brand. Brands should feel safe when they're in this neighborhood. And if you think about it, it's more than just online video. I really believe we're living in a time where we need more community and we need more inspiration, and we need to feel good about the lives we're building. Just, that's a human thing. And I think all of the content that we're building and this whole strategy goes to that. You know, it's great that two billion people sit on these platforms. Sometimes it can feel very isolated. And if we can create a neighborhood where people feel like connected, and they feel inspired, and they feel good, I think that's a very important thing, in particular right now, for us to be building. Wow, amazing. Yeah. What's coming next for the video industry more broadly? What are some of the predictions that you have? That is an excellent question. So I'm interested to see the whole Netflix, Disney, now that Fox is getting acquired. And Hulu. Yeah, right? Hulu, it's right. Kind of pulled I'm interested into that. to see that. That, doesn't, that will have some impact on our business. But again, what we talked about before, that's more, I think, pay, you know, behind the paywall, big scripted content, movies. It's a little different than the lifestyle entertainment stuff that we're focused on. So, look, I I think, kind of what I said, I think this neighborhood strategy is going to be important to YouTube and to Facebook and to Instagram and to Amazon in particular. Women are on all those platforms. They all are following their favorite talent. They're all consuming their favorite content. They're obviously consumers of products. 
You know, obviously are getting their brand cues from these platforms. And I think that having these kind of well-lit neighborhoods are going to be important on these platforms, that people want that. They want curation. They want to not have to sift through a sea of content. So I think you're going to see more curation and more brands being built on curation. You've even mentioned a couple of those brands. I think what's really going to be interesting is this dynamic of digitally native social influencer versus traditional celebrity. So I think, I think in a sense, one wants what the other has. The digitally native creator has been really brought up in the last five plus years on a platform that has been commoditized very quickly. And you know this from your business very quickly. I mean, there are quite literally millions of social influencers now. You could argue anyone on the platform is a social influencer. So how, how do these folks tip into the mainstream when the algorithm underneath it is built to disrupt them, right? So if you, were, if you had a certain uh, lifestyle passion and you posted a video five years ago, you might have been one of the very few people posting a type of video like that. And there might not have been a lot of videos around that lifestyle passion. Now you move five years ahead, there are quite literally thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of people creating content in that passion uh, group. And there are probably millions more videos. And so there's this weird thing I think happening with social influencers where they're getting disrupted by their own platforms. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm interested to see, and I think it'll be interesting to see how many of those tip into the mainstream when what got them there in the first place was not being mainstream, it was being niche. So it's fascinating to me. I think on the flip side, you have traditional talent, who in many cases were around and people cared about well before even the internet started, who have been indexed on Google. People have been searching for them for years. And so they're now trying to figure out, how do I create this really engaged relationship with an audience that the digitally native influencers have been so good at? So one is trying to get more engaged and almost, in a sense, more niche or more digital, and one is trying to figure out how do I create that magic that all of these traditional influencers had and tip into the mainstream so I can broaden what I do. Um, and I think that's going to keep moving forward. And, I, and I, what I'm so excited about is I want to work with both. I mean, I want to I be able to take, so Kin as a brand wants to be able to take social influencers who are digital and help them tip into the mainstream with more mainstream uh, content. And likewise, we want to work with traditional talent and help them understand how they can be building IP across these platforms in a more engaged way. So, you know, I'm curious on, the, on where TV is going. Where my head goes is more what happens to the food networks and the HGTVs and the Discovery channels. Obviously, there's consolidation there. Where do they fit? Where does lifestyle content on the traditional side fit into that? And I think we're all trying to solve that together. And we, you know, Chorus is another example. Chorus is a lifestyle, it's kind of like the Scripps Networks, if you will, of Canada. And so I think that's what they're thinking about. Ultimately, it's going to come down to who can build this scalable, profitable, or scalable, repeatable, and profitable business. And so much of the narrative right now with digital is that, oh, well, it's not living up to this, its expectations, and we, revenue numbers were missing. And this is, look, for someone, we started this by saying, you know, I started in 1997, 98 in this. This happens. There's always expectation mismanagement as you go through this very protracted disruption. But if you stay focused and if you have 
real passion and resolve about the long term, which hopefully if there's one thing you, you can tell, I haven't been in that for 20 years, like I'm in it, I'm in it forever, basically. You have so to be. You have right? to be in it forever. And I think, I think if you don't get too low when it's low and you don't get too high when everyone's going crazy about it and you just stay focused and, and, and focus on quality and focus on your audience and focus on building something that is scalable, repeatable, it's going to happen. It's just not going to, it's going to happen in slow motion. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Media brands are not built overnight. Even the success of something like a Smosh, which we've seen, you know, they found their niche audience and have been able to grow that and build a media empire over the years. But you're right. There's all this doom and gloom in the press and we, it kind of is maybe a necessary correction from the over exuberance of the early days when there's a lot of potential and people see that these platforms afford a direct connection with audience and an opportunity for scale. But, you know, it, it, we're still in early innings of the whole online video revolution. We are. And again, we can talk about this another time, you know, part two, we can do, we can do publisher, yeah. publisher versus <laughs> pure play video company podcast and kind of talk about the nuance yep. there. But I think if you really look at some of the negativity a lot of that is this conflating of digital publisher and online video. And I think those two businesses are fundamentally separate. And so when you see, oh my God, like BuzzFeed this or this that, and you know, talk, I don't want to name names, but, but a lot of it is that um, if you really look at it, the economics of video and the economics of digital publishing are very, very different. And just putting them together doesn't make for a great business. I would argue actually that they shouldn't be together. Obviously, we're, we're focused just on building the video business. It's harder. It's going to take a longer time, but the underlying economics and the ability to build brands and the ability to build high quality content and the, the fact that it's video, which I believe is the best storytelling platform in the world and it's the best way to get brands excited, whether it's pre-roll or integrations. It's just ultimately, in my opinion, more long-term valuable and less commoditizable. Um, so I think, I think it's, yes, there's a lot of maybe, it's not a lot of negativity, but I think the narratives maybe has changed uh, for sure in the last couple of years. I still think I'm long on the online video space. Yeah. And I love your long-term perspective and the fact that you've dedicated your career, as you said, to, to online video and, and what's happening. If you were to take everything you've learned through this experience and you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I'd do exactly what we're doing. <laughs> that's, a, that's an easy one. I'd be creating inspiring, well-lit, brand-safe neighborhoods uh, across platforms, working with talent that have uh, great social and really coming up with innovative uh, series ideas and formats around an audience that cares about that, that's passionate about that, and that could be in that could be in lots of different verticals. We happen to be, you know, have spent our history focused on one audience and one vertical for now ten years, but uh, I think it could be in multiple verticals. Yeah. Are there any specific verticals that either get you excited or that you think are still particularly underserved? That's a great question. While you're thinking about it, I talked to Kelly Day about this, and she yeah. said, you know, I don't think that there's a lot of content online for older audiences, right? And yeah. now that we've had YouTube for close to 12, 13 years, whatever it is, people are aging up with these platforms, growing up, expecting more content, and, and still, you don't see uh, older audiences having as much content to consume. 
It is true. I think older audiences, ironically bringing up Kelly, clearly she believes in younger audiences. This is true. And believes in companies like Pocket Watch who are doing similar things, uh, targeting young audiences. Uh, I highly recommend seeing the Mr. Rogers documentary, if you haven't already. It's called... Won't You Be My Neighbor? Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, That's right. I saw it last night. And I walked out of that... It's ironic because we've been... all, All of the strategy and press that we've been talking about has been around our quote-unquote neighborhood strategy. We did not take it from Mr. Rogers, by the way, but but it, it does kind of fit. You know, his whole philosophy on creating a neighborhood where kids felt safe and his real disdain for where children's programming was going, even in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s and 90s and beyond, like... To me, that resonated so much with me as having two young kids that we need that more than ever now. Like having really valuable, uh, safe children's places online that really takes into consideration child development. I just don't see it. I, I mean, I, thankfully my kids are not, you know, I think they've, they're well-adjusted, knock on wood, as well-adjusted as, as you could hope your children would be and have grown up primarily on iPads and iPhones and, and looking at online content. But there's no question that there's probably uh, a major, hopefully not too negative, but probably a major negative impact that, the, that children watching content has online. And we won't know for decades probably what that impact is, but... I would imagine if Mr. Rogers was still alive and living and and looking at how kids consume content and what they're consuming and what the impact it's making, I'm sure he would have a very strong point of view that the world needs a safer place for kids online. And, you know, I'm sure Chris Williams and what they're doing at Pocket Watch is is addressing that, but I would say that's a a great space. I think older audience is a great space. To be honest with you, I think every vertical is a great space. It's less about what vertical, it's more about how you're building your business and how you're evolving your business if you're already in digital media. So I just think, I think there's, it's just a great time right now. Michael, where can people find out more about you and more about Kin Community? Well, kincommunity.com. Um, we're really focused now on this new model, but what I was going to say is kincommunity.com is not a content site. It's really a corporate site. So there's not a lot there. I mean, you'll see an overview of what we do and you'll see some pictures of some of our talent and you'll see some headshots of our team and stuff like that. But if you really want to get a, a sense of what we're doing, um, you can go to obviously Kin on, you know, Kin Community on Facebook or Kin on, on um, YouTube. Uh, you can check out all the channels that we're still partnered with on the MCI inside great channels like Rosanna Pensino's channel uh, and uh, how to kick it and large DIY. They're all still great partners of Kim and also some of the newer channels that we have like Tiamari's quick fix and all things Adrian. Th- those are really the best examples of what we're doing. And, you know, the only other thing is we actually have been called Kin community, but we've recently switched to just calling the company Kin. And our community is really our talent and our audience, but the company's Kin now. We don't own Kin.com, so that's 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 a, 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 a something that we'll have to fix in the future. But <laughs> um, but yeah, KinCommunity.com is the easiest place to learn. Or look me up on LinkedIn. Anyone wants to connect with me on LinkedIn? I, I publish a couple articles a day on LinkedIn. Try to not be self-promotion or like beating our own chest. It's, I'm very into, uh, you know, kind of just... Uh, 
articles that interest me that hopefully people in our space would find interesting. So you can check me uh, out on LinkedIn for sure. Well, this has been fascinating. It's always incredible to find people who think so deeply about the media space and the evolution that it's going through. So thanks again for sharing your perspective. Well, thank you. This has been uh, a total delight. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.